We have been uh, kind of going through a de facto series. It wasn't planned to be a series when I started, but it kind of turned into that. And as we, uh, you know, as Frank had said, you know, we're going through this move right now. So that's created a lot of uh, stir of the stuff off the bottom of the aquarium. So we're kind of going out into the unknown here and, uh, and charting new courses. And so it's a disturbing time. It's, a, it's kind of a scary time, of course, and yet it's an exciting time at the same time. And so kind of parallel to my personal experience as we've been going through this for the past six weeks has kind of been dragging you all through it as well and, um, and kind of looking at what does this journey look like when we don't know where we're going, when the things that were familiar to us are suddenly kind of taken away and, and we're, we're dealing with a new world, a new landscape, new uh, parameters and rules and choices that we've never made before. How do we do that? How does that comport with the spiritual journey? So the last few weeks we've been dealing with that and going through it. And uh, I want to continue that uh, because it is so difficult for us to imagine the world that produced our scriptures that produced the Bible that we use to be able to be that, that guide star for us. But the world that produced it is so different from ours. It's difficult for us to be able to understand the spirituality that it is describing, the shape of the journey that it's describing. So, just for a moment, try to imagine you in ancient times. Try to imagine what it's like to live in a world where you don't understand the workings of nature. Where storms and thunder and lightning are somehow cosmic experiences. Or where the actions of the gods. And we don't understand how nature works. Think about earthquakes and, and uh, I don't know, twisters and all the, the, the extreme forms of weather. How would that affect you if you didn't understand the science behind it? How about when the eclipse comes and suddenly everything goes dark in the middle of the day? Try to imagine yourself in a world where none of that was understood scientifically, but only spiritually. Try to imagine yourself completely dependent on the rains, completely dependent on weather patterns, completely dependent on your domestic animals and the wild animals, on on the weather, on the crops, on each other, your family, your family structure for your very survival. That every day was a look toward whether the weather was going to cooperate, whether the crops were going to succeed or fail, whether the animals were still producing, still alive. That each one of those signs meant life or death for you and your family. Try to imagine the kind of relationship, the stance that would create in you, in your relationship with everything. Try to imagine that it gets impossibly dark at night. There are no lights of any type except for this immense blanket of stars with the whole shape of the galaxy bisecting the heavens. Imagine what that's like night after night to have to actually obey the sunset to bring it down because you can't see where you're going and then you have this amazing canopy over you that is so breathtaking, so awe-inspiring, so out of reach. What does that do to you? What does that do 
to your sense of spirituality. Imagine never seeing a reflection of yourself. You know, we take for granted. We've got mirrors, we've got all, we've got photographs, we've got all sorts of things. Imagine that you have never seen your own face your entire life. If someone did take a group shot of you and your friends, you wouldn't be able to pick yourself out because you've never seen your own face. What does that do to your sense of self? What does that do to your identity? What does that do to your sense of relationship? How does that change your own, our own self-consciousness about how we look and how we present and how much time we spend looking at our own reflection if that were simply just not possible? Imagine a culture, a village, in which you spend an entire week, seven days, on a wedding. A seven-day party. The entire village, the entire town shuts down because everybody's pretty much related to each other anyway, and a wedding goes on for seven days. What would that be like? Imagine a village, a town, a society in which the only entertainment are the stories we tell and the chants and the songs that we sing around that fire at night. That's it. That is the sum total of our entertainment and our school. It's how we teach our children by teaching them in the songs, embedded in the songs and the chants that we sing, the information that they're going to need to be able to carry on into the new generation. Imagine being in a nomadic caravan crossing an ocean of sand with no sustenance in sight except what you carry with you to pitch a tent every night in which to sleep, to strike that tent in the morning and move on again. Or imagine yourself in a tiny koa canoe in the middle of the Pacific, looking for land, exploring, finding out what's out there, completely at the mercy of wind and water, the two most powerful and destructive forces on the planet, and you are there in the midst of it, at the mercy of it, putting yourself out there to see what's out there? What kind of spirituality would that world produce if we could even, we can't imagine it fully, but if we can even place ourselves in a position like that, how would that change our sense of self, our sense of connection, and our sense of spirituality? What kind of life would it be? How would we relate to each other differently to God. Last week we were trying to dig into this a little bit and taking a page from Native American spirituality, you know, because it can help us to look for us to look at different cultures, especially cultures that are closer to the ancient Hebrews who produced our scripture, to try to understand where they're coming from and how they approach spirituality, how they approach basic day to day relationships. If we can see a little bit of that in action. And it helps us to be able to move into that space as well and see how that alters and changes the spirituality that Jesus is talking about, coming from that perspective, coming from that place. So we looked at Native American spirituality. We read some quotes. Crowfoot was talking about that the sum of life is contained in the flash of a firefly at night or the breath of a buffalo in winter, the steam coming out of the nostrils, to be so immersed in a singular event that in that moment you feel the connection of everything. You feel 
what life is all about, the meaning and purpose of it, the identity of it, contained in that singular, concrete event. It changes everything when we look at it from this point of view. So that was last Sunday. And then during the week, my, my new friend Bill sent me an email that was triggered by that because he had just gotten a newsletter from a friend who is now living in Hawaii and starting to learn Hawaiian culture. And it was interesting because he said he saw the connection there and there absolutely is a connection there. And as I was reading this newsletter that he sent me, then I was remembering that, gosh, it's getting to be eight years ago, that I did a message on Hawaiian and Polynesian spirituality for the same reason, because it helps us to be able to get into that place Hawaiian spirituality parallels Hebrew spirituality to such a great extent that trying to understand more about what they see, how they live their lives, is really helpful. And in the newsletter, the newsletter that uh, Bill sent and in the study that I had done, it starts with aloha. How many of you have been to the islands? Hawaiian islands? Or to any Polynesian island, you know? It's got that other world sort of sense, doesn't it? I mean... Not Oahu anymore, that's like Las Vegas. But uh, you get to Kauai, you get to one of, the, uh, you know, one of the more remote islands or remote areas of Maui or the Big Island, and it changes. There's a difference. You feel the difference. And even though you're standing on land and you can only see one coastline at a time, there's something in the back of your mind that says that you are standing on this little dot in the middle of thousands of miles of water. If you look at the a globe, the Pacific Ocean, if you look at it straight on, it's the entire disk that you're looking at. It's immense. And here's this little dot, and you're standing on it. I remember standing at the very southernmost tip of the Big Island of Hawaii with Marion several years ago, and just feeling like I was on the edge of the world, you know? Just knowing that, looking straight ahead off of the, these bluffs, these cliffs, with this huge, you know, stiff breeze in our faces was nothing but thousands of miles of water and eventually you'd hit Australia, I guess. You know, it was an amazing feeling. Imagine being the first Polynesians two, three thousand years ago getting into a single or double-hulled canoe, a canoe, and setting off through the surf of your homeland and just charting a course and going. What would that be like in a canoe not having any idea how long you were going to be at sea or if there was going to be anything to receive you. I mean, these things just boggle my mind as I think about them. I can't imagine what that would be like, what that would feel like. Now, in a people whose culture was such, in a seafaring people, it's more part of who they are. I get that. But still, think about what's at play here. Think about what's going on. I wanted to talk about it because aloha itself, which is both a hello and a goodbye, it's a standard greeting, is indicative of where they're coming from. Aloha comes from two word roots. Alo, which means in the presence of, and ha, which is their word for the breath of life, the breath of God. Literally, aloha means to be in the presence of the breath of God, to be in the presence of the breath of life. And as Bill's friend's email pointed out, that many of the Native, Ameri Native Americans, many of the Hawaiians, still greet each other by touching noses because it's a sharing of breath between the two of them to get that close, to invade each other's space, to share their very breath with each other is aloha. 
It's almost impossible to be able to understand Hebrew spirituality without understanding breath. Because to the Hebrews, ruach, or in Aramaic, ruha, means both wind, breath, and spirit, all at the same time, all three. They understood the Spirit of God to be contained in breath, to be contained in wind. That there was always motion associated If there was no motion, there was no life. And so God's spirit was always understood as moving, respirating, breathing throughout of all creation. And they were part of that collective respiration. They who were so close to the ground, so tied to all the rhythms of life, they were part of that. And they understood that. And to share that with each other was life. It was the basis of their spirituality. I wanted to read a little bit of this uh, article and then some other attendant readings to see if we can kind of drill down a little bit and suspend whatever we think we know about spirituality from a Western sense and a religion and everything and see if we can just get into this other mindset and see how it can change the way that we perceive and the way that we approach our spirituality. Brenda um, Belden Lane was living in the island's kind of like Bill's friend, and he writes, the wind was still strong as we came down from the crater rim on Haleakala shortly after sunrise. Waiting alongside others in the 4 a.m. darkness, we had watched the sun rise out of the Pacific like an orange-red ember. It was a cold morning. Standing at 10,000 feet, people huddled in blankets against the 50-mile-an-hour winds from the east. The winds in Hawaii almost always come from the east and are strong, steady, insistent, like the frequent northeasters of New England and the Sirocco of the Algerians. It seems never to cease. The ancient Hawaiians called it Ha, the breath of God. For thousands of years, this wind has formed the physical and spiritual life of the peoples of the Pacific. Its consistent direction allowed early Polynesian explorers to travel thousands of miles over the ocean in simple koa wood canoes. The wind has also brought rain, washing the verdant mountain forests on the windward side of the islands. In Hawaiian mythology, wind heralded Loko, the god of storm and rain, and hence of fertility. Like Ezekiel and Job, the Pacific peoples have known that God often speaks from the whirlwind. Theirs is a faith shaped by aloha, a word drawn from two roots, meaning in the presence of wind, breath, or spirit. In Hawaii, to speak of God means necessarily to be open to the often disturbing and life-giving wind of the Spirit. And there's that word again. We keep running back up against it, coming back up against the notion of disturbance, the notion of disorientation. You know, And what's more disturbing than to set out in a tiny koa canoe off into a landless you know, horizon of nothing but water wherever you look. It's hard for us to to get into that space. But we get disturbed in life. We have our own disturbances. Can we learn to see them as a setting out, like these people set out, so that in the midst of the disturbance, in the midst of the disorientation, and even the fear, is still the sense of adventure, still that sense of something coming, something out there to be discovered, Something incredibly valuable. You know, this is where we, this is mirrored in our spirituality as well. Thomas Merton, in a book called Opening the Bible, wrote this 
It is of the very nature of the Bible to affront, perplex, and astonish the human mind. How about that? Aren't we supposed to understand this? Aren't we supposed to have it all together? No, he's saying it's the nature of the Bible to perplex, astonish, and affront the human mind. Hence, the reader who opens the Bible must be prepared for disorientation, confusion, incomprehension, perhaps even outrage. The Bible is without question one of the most unsatisfying books ever written, at least until the reader has come to terms with it in a very special way. But it is a difficult book to come to terms with. Far easier, perhaps, if we just pretend the question is all settled in advance. The Bible raises the question of identity in a way no other book does. When you begin to question the Bible, you find that the Bible is also questioning you. When you ask, what is this book? You find that you are also implicitly being asked, who is this that reads it? One does not go from answer to answer, but from question to question. One's questions are answered not by clear definitive answers, but by more pertinent and more crucial questions. We are to understand life not by analyzing it, but by living it in such a way that we come to a full realization of our own identity. If you're really going to study the Bible, if you're really going to approach these sacred scriptures, there is no other way that it can be approached except like putting your canoe out into the water and paddling away until you can't see shore anymore. It's the only way this works. And as with the Bible and approaching our spirituality from that point of view, so it is with life. In your inserts, there, this is the first little quotation there, so you can follow along if you like. It's from the Cloud of Unknowing, which is a medieval English work from an anonymous author and one of the great works in the English language dealing with this contemplative way of living life. Listen to what this author says. Thought cannot comprehend God. And so I prefer to abandon all I can know, choosing rather to love him who I cannot know. Though we cannot know him, we can love him. By love he may be touched and embraced, but never by thought. In the beginning of our journeys, it is usual to feel nothing but a kind of darkness about your mind, or as it were, a cloud of unknowing. You will seem to know nothing and to feel nothing except a naked intent toward God in the depths of your being. You will feel frustrated, for your mind will be unable to grasp him, and your heart will not relish the delight of his love. But learn to be at home in this darkness. Return to it as often as you can, letting your spirit cry out to him whom you love. For if in this life you hope to feel and see God as he is in himself, it must be within this darkness and this cloud. In other words, outside of our reasoning, outside of our ability to create edges and images, why did the Hebrews, why were they forbidden to make images of God? Because it took them out of this kind of experience, this heart-to-heart, spirit-to-spirit experience. As soon as they had something to focus on, an object, they were separated from it. And the separation was the sin. It was coming into this confluence that was the key. Can we begin to see life as an adventure? Really, the setting out as the main event. You know, your adventure begins when the car breaks down, right? I mean, that's really what happens. You plan your itinerary and you have it all figured out. 
but it's not an adventure until something goes wrong. Can I get an amen out there? All right. I mean, come on, you've all experienced this, right? I had a, um, a <laughs> the trip that I that always comes to mind is from, you know, it's getting to be 40 years ago, um, when I was uh, just out of, uh, in between colleges and just out of a touring group, and a friend of mine from the touring group lived in Denver, and he was getting married to a, a girl he met in the group who lived in Dothan, Alabama. I was in Santa Barbara with my parents at the time, and I had a new, really old used Mazda pickup truck with a camper shell on back, you know? And like we used to back in the 70s, we put the padding and uh, shag carpeting back there so you could sleep. And since I was going cross-country back to Chicago, where I was going to school, I had a friend's drum set that I was selling to somebody else over there. I had boxes, cardboard boxes full of all my stuff and, and my guitars and all my equipment back there. And I set off. And I go. And I get as far as uh, Eastern California, and now the rains start. Torrential rains so that the whole highway was blocked. I had to spend 24 hours in the desert waiting to just get the road unblocked so that I could continue on to Denver. And the plan was I was going to drive to Denver, I was going to meet Gary there, and then we were going to continue and drive to Dothan, Alabama and switch off on the driving, right? This is before cell phones. I don't have a cell phone. I can't call the man and tell him what's going on. I'm just not there when I'm supposed to be. So he panics because he's the groom, right? And he gets on a plane and he flies to to Alabama. I get to his apartment and nobody's there and there's a note on the door. Sorry. And so I've got standing water now in my plush carpeting in the back because, of course, the camper shell leaks. So I'm pulling everything out on his front lawn of the apartment complex and trying to, you know, wring everything out. And as soon as I get it all out on the, on the lawn and it's drying, it starts to rain again. So I'm putting it all back in again. Okay, I'm in Denver. I haven't really slept in about 30 hours. And I'm looking at the map because we still had maps back then. Again, there was no Siri to help me on this. And I'm looking at this. I've got to drive all the way to Dothan, Alabama, which is a couple thousand miles by myself now. And I've already lost a day. I don't know what day of the week it was, but the rehearsal dinner was on Friday, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I remember meeting um, a girl in Seattle who lived in Hayes, Kansas, when we were taking a trip up there. So I just look in the phone book, in the phone booth, remember? And I find her and I call her and she actually picks up the phone and I said, do you remember me from Seattle last summer? And she probably could have thought it was an axe murder, but can I just sleep on your couch tonight? <laughs> she let me do it. So at least I got one night of sleep and then I dr- drove straight from Hayes, Kansas to Dothan, Alabama in a straight shot. It was 36 hours of driving after not a whole heck of a lot of sleep. Everything that could go wrong went wrong, but here I am telling you the story, story 40 years later because it was an adventure. If everything had gone right, I would have quickly forgotten it and I never would have told the story again. It's the adventure that makes it useful. It's the things that go wrong and take us off course that we will remember and talk about. We had a wedding in here. I just told this story on Wednesday night. We had a wedding in here several years ago and it had a big flowered arch and everything was just nice and bride and groom in their black and white vest and everything and we get to the ring exchange ceremony and it's all hushed and everybody is, is just listening. And just as we're exchanging the rings, the little ring girl, her name was Madeline, she yells out, I want a ring too! It took about five minutes to settle the room back down so that we could start again. They will be talking about that moment for the rest of their married life. The things that go right are the things we expect. 
Can we start to see life as an adventure? It will change everything. Can we learn to live in aloha, in other words? Just exchanging the breath of God. Now, if we can't do that, there's a name for us. And if you've been to Hawaii, you know what it is. Have you heard the term haole before? In Hawaii, I received a new name, one that defined me in ways I did not want to accept. I came to be known as a haole, a term that Hawaiians have applied to white-skinned foreigners since the arrival of the British sea captain James Cook in 1778. At first, they welcomed Cook as a, as a god and believed his ships came to the islands on the winds of Lono. But his incessant and arrogant demands for provisions soon made him appear considerably less than divine. His men took the women they wanted and shot anyone who got in their way. The word haole, perhaps not inappropriately, literally means without breath, without wind, without spirit. A colorless, paste-white absence of spirit and feeling, an inability to appreciate the land and the dignity of its people. Yet to be able to recognize oneself as haole is also to be open to repentance and subsequently to a new wholeness. To accept a new name is also to entertain a new way of being. We have to accept our powerlessness, right? Step one, we have to accept that we are haole, that we have lost the connection with breath and wind and spirit if we're ever going to be able to make the change that is required here. The Spirit of God broods over the waters of east and west, breathing new life in both directions. Known in Hebrew as Ruach, in Greek as Numa, in Latin as Anima, in Sanskrit and Chinese as Prima and Chi, or in Polynesian as Mana, the sacred wind of God's breath cannot be limited to the categories of thought most familiar to Western theology. How does one summarize for Western Christians how the breath of God moves over the waters and speaks with critical insight to the breathless character of Western religious experience? Its tendency toward individualism and compulsive action, its overly spiritual rejection of the natural world, right? Pulling away from the world. We're supposed to be the more spiritual we are, the less worldly we are to pull away, whereas with the Hebrews and these indigenous peoples, it was to immerse yourself in the physical environment, in human relationships that made you the most spiritual that you could possibly be. And a tendency toward individualism and compulsive action, overly spiritual rejection of the natural world, and a general posture of dominance and conquest. So for us as Howley, you know, keeping earth and breath at a distance, keeping my personal space intact. You know, it's kind of weird to think that I would actually touch a nose with someone and breathe their breath. I don't like that. Keep further away, you know. How can we begin the process of bringing breath back to re-experience this sense of setting out on blue water in a tiny canoe with no guarantee of outcome? Just the experience of going Hawaiian spirituality gives us five interconnected elements that maybe can help us to be able to bring back Jesus' teaching in a new way. And the first element, and you can follow along in your inserts, is manawa, the Hawaiian word that means the slowing of time, slowing time down. Traditional Hawaiian attitudes towards time and work are very different from the hurried drivenness of most Westerners who seldom have time to catch their breath. Time for many of us is a series of short-winded, fleeting intervals, crying out to be filled. How's that for 
characterizing time for us. Short, fleeting intervals that we have to fill with something. But Manawa signifies instead the lingering, gentle ebb of water across a tranquil bay. And in this way of thinking, time isn't so much something to be used as it is a place in which one tarries, hangs out with a three-mile-an-hour God. I love that. A three-mile-an-hour God, alongside of whom one walks without hurry, the patient, rhythmic breathing of one step following another. In Polynesian mythology, no hero is more famous than Maui, the mischievous trickster. In one tale, Maui captures the sun with ropes early one morning as a brilliant orb rises over the crater of Haleakala. After lassoing each ray of the rising sun, he tied them to a willy-willy tree, making the sun promise to slow down in its passage across the sky. This would give his mother time to finish without haste her daily chores of drying tapa cloth and preparing food. As a result, Hawaiians have always been invited to share in the slowing down of time. Time is a function of spirit and breath, something far different from the digital inflexibility Many Westerners have made it. Even to the ancient Greeks, Homer in the Odyssey, when Odysseus finally makes it all the way back to his home island of Ithaca and reunites with his wife Penelope on the first night, the gods hold back the dawn, slow down time so that they can have more night on their first night together. You know, these wonderful images, this idea of slowing it down, going in another direction, Again, from the cloud of unknowing, God, the master of time, never gives the future. He gives only the present, moment by moment. For this is the law of the created order. And God will not contradict himself in his creation. Time is for man and not man for time. God, the Lord of nature, will never anticipate man's choices, which follow one after another in time. Man will not be able to excuse himself at the last judgment, saying to God, You overwhelmed me with the future when I was only capable of living in the present. Have you ever noticed this slowing down of time? For me, it occurs most kind of in sports or in music or in art when you get into a flow and it just seems like it just dilates. It just opens up, you know. You can see what's happening. You have time to react. You have time to move in between the notes of the music or moving the ball around the court or whatever it is you happen to be doing. People who are artists tell me the same thing, that they get into a flow and it just opens up and it's like they can't make a mistake. Every stroke goes where it's supposed to go. There's this dilation. As a kid, do you remember how the summer vacations just seem to go on forever? Just on and on and on. Or if you're old enough, do you remember when you went out to play and your parents just told you, just be home before the street lights come on? That was the only instruction we had, right? Gosh, we wouldn't do that now with our kids. But those afternoons would go on forever, completely immersed in the slowing down of time inside of that bubble, just watching it move through. Everything happening now. How does Jesus put it at Matthew 6.28? He says, Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? 
For the Gentiles, those who are not of our tribe, do not know our ways, do not know our God, the nature of our God, how trustworthy he is. Those who don't know that eagerly seek all these things, worry about them. For your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We need to distinguish between the urgent and the important. Just because something is urgent doesn't make it important. And if it's important, it's not always urgent. In fact, really, the most important things in life are not urgent. We spend all our time with the urgent things, and we never get to the important things, which are usually without deadline. It's just involved in this dilation, this slowing down of time. Can we start to go there? So mindfulness is this first aspect of Hawaiian spirituality that can help to guide us. Aware and awareness of our own presence in the moment. We are here. We are now. We are part of all of this. And if we will actually immerse in it, bring our full attention to it, it opens up to us like a flower in ways that we wouldn't experience otherwise. A second element is aloha aina, or the love of the land. Hawaiians deeply appreciate place and seldom generalize God's presence in an abstract way, but find it in specific places, here in the circle of stones beside the pandanas tree, there in the thick bamboo forest on the trail to Moaimea Falls. This insistence of life is most telling on the windward side of the islands. There everything bends to extravagance. Flame red torch ginger and plumeria blooms grow wild and profuse on the road to Hana. Yet everything dies in equal exuberance. The flora molds and rots, ever making room for the new. The wooden porch from which one surveys the sea is slowly carried away by tiny ants working everywhere underfoot. Green moss waits nearby to reclaim what had once been separated from the earth. Aina describes all of this. The land, which literally to the Hawaiians means that which feeds, nourishing the spirit in its prodigal display of boisterousness. I love that. And so prayerfulness is the second hallmark of the spirituality. The awareness of God's presence in the moment. Mindfulness is awareness of our presence. Prayerfulness is awareness of God's presence. Never abstract, but concrete and specific, pointing to the reality of God's presence that is felt right here, right now, in this environment. For the Hebrews, it was the Shekinah, the actual pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that you could see settling in front of the tent, God speaking to Moses, then on and through the tent, and then in the temple, and then on Jesus, and then on all the disciples at Pentecost. It was a felt presence, as real as all life was around us. In a 19th century Russian piece called The Way of a Pilgrim, remember God always, everywhere and in all situations. When you behold light, remember who gives it to you. When you see heaven and earth and sea and all that they contain, be in awe and give praise to their creator. When you put on your clothes, remember whose gifts they are and give thanks to him who takes care of your needs. God is concrete. God is here. God is now in the very breath. At Genesis 2-7, 
This is where God forms Adam out of the clay of the earth and then breathes into his nostrils and creates nefesh hayah, a living being. To the Jews, it was the breath of God that animated the body and brought it alive. It was the breath that sustained it throughout its entire life. God's breath, our breath, together, one breath. You know, at 1 Timothy 3:16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed in with this life of God. How is it living and active? Because God breathed into it. At Matthew 25, verse 32, this is that great white throne judgment, the sheep and the goats, right? And the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Because as he's saying all this stuff, when did we see you, Lord? When did we do this? It's concrete. It's here. It's now. Our actions with each other are sacred actions. When they are done with this awareness of ourselves in, the, in this moment and God's presence in this moment. This is how it works. Relationship with God is a real thing. The next factor is this idea of mo'olelo. Mo'olelo. The power of the spoken word. In Hawaii, theology is always to be chanted or sung. Sacred chants were traditionally practiced on the beach so as to reproduce the modulations of wind and waves. To do theology, the Asian Pacific way, is to connect one's innermost being to the presence of God in the surrounding environment by means of breath. It is an inescapably physical, sacramental experience. This contrasts with the Western theology's bias toward the written expression of abstract thought. To the Hawaiians, sacred tales must be spoken. There's power in their words, a force coming from the sound breathed into them. Traditional Hawaiians emphasize this oral power in storytellers, those skilled in the art of apo, catching the spoken word, so as to allow the event to be re-experienced. Our Bible is written this way. We're supposed to re-experience it, not just understand it abstractly. Unlike Western narratives that strive for a balanced formal structure, talk story is a rambling way of remembering the past so as to create it anew in the changing moment. In the past century, plantation workers would gather to talk in the evenings near the pineapple fields. One of them might ask in pidgin English, remember when we was small kid time? And the fragmented tales of the past would be spun out in the shape of fantasy, lending a dignity to the hardships of the present. A mother would often talk story to her daughter at night as she went to sleep, making it impossible to know where the stories left off and the dreams began. It is the nature of talk story to be open-ended, given to dreamlike images, intimate, ava- intimately available to the spirit. And so here's this idea of mindful prayer, being aware of the connection between our prayers and reality, living out our faith in this real time, that our prayer time is the real world. It shows us the connection, the infusion of God's Spirit into the real world. 
In Genesis 1-3, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, here's God's word, God's prayer, carried on breath, infused with breath, creating actual reality. The Hebrews are saying, the word, the breath, is the reality. It makes things real. At John 20, 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them. This is the risen Jesus appearing to his disciples in the upper room, and he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. We've got to be able to see this connection between words carried on breath and actual action, life, the power of the Spirit in the breath, in the action itself. This is what we're trying to get across. You know, this idea of pidgin English is so interesting. Did you know that there is a, uh, a version of the New Testament that is translated into Hawaiian pidgin English? You know, did, you, did you know that? It's called the, the Jesus Book. To Jesus' book. I know it's getting, I, I just, I need to read just a little bit because it's so great. How about the Lord's Prayer from the Jesus book? Jesus won't teach like this, so pray like this. God, you are Father. You stay inside the sky. We all like the people know for sure how you stay and that you good and special inside. And we like them give you plenty respect. We like you. Come king over here now. We like everybody make you like you like over here, inside the world. To like the angel guys up inside the sky, make you like you like. Give us the food we need for every day. Let us go and humor our shame for all the kind bad stuff we do to you. To like us guys, let the other guy go already. And we know stay hoo-hoo with them for all the kind bad stuff they do to us. No let us get chance for do bad kind stuff. But take us out of there so the bad guy no can hurt us. Because you are king. You get the real power. And you stay awesome forever. That's it. <laughs> uh, 23rd Psalm, just a little bit. The boss above, he take care of me. To like the sheep farmer, take care of his sheeps. He go and give me everything I need. He let me lie down with the sweet and soft grass day. He lead me by the water where I can rest. He give me new kind life. He lead me in the road that stay right. Because I his guy. <laughs> it's a different kind of relationship can you see it can you feel it when spirituality is approached from this ground level point of view a fourth factor is ohana you may have heard this and there was a Disney movie that, was, that featured it ohana is the word for family but it's an extended family the importance of family and community the universe is seen as an immense family tree all things in it are related Ohana describes the family connectedness valued so highly in a Hawaiian experience. Derived from the word oha, referring to the tiny interconnected roots of the taro plant, it is an appropriate image for the closely knit community where relationships serve as an anchor of identity. We have no anchors for identity in our society now. In Hawaii, I had experienced hospitality and graciousness like nowhere else. The traditional Hawaiian family carefully preserved its own proverbs and chants, its occasions for house blessing and the naming of children, its rites of inhaling the first light of day and the conferring of creative powers by exhaling. As in similar Native American traditions, all these symbolic images and gestures are associated with the wind and the breathing of the universe, the visible motion of the power that invests everything in existence, to exist in family is to experience an insistent Chinook wind blowing warm in winter and cool in summer. 
lending a direction and center to all that one does. In Hebrew, the word is mishpacha. It means family, but it's extended family. In Hebrew, there's no word for cousin. Everybody is brother and sister. Everybody is part of the nuclear understanding that we would have of family. Everyone is connected. Everyone is interrelated. And here at Luke 10.29, when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor, trying to pin him again to the wall, and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, whose hero is the Samaritan, the person that they looked at as the lowest of the low, filthy half-breeds, you know, was it mugbloods or whatever the heck they were called in, in Harry Potter? They hated those people. Jesus is expanding the notion of mishpacha even beyond what they understood it by going beyond blood and saying, yes, we are all mishpacha. We are all ohana. There is no distinction between us as human beings and God's children. Can we explode beyond our own self-imposed boundaries, those of society, those of our own family, whatever has been put on us that keeps us separate and shelved off? Can we bleed out and see the connection between all of this? That we're all breathing as one, we're all part of this collective respiration that makes us all one thing. Can we do that? And finally... Hawaiian spirituality includes eha eha, the cry for justice. This emerges out of the dislocation and the pain that many along the Pacific Rim have suffered. In the theology of the pain of God, Kazo Kitamori suggests that the heart of the gospel is found in God's own excruciating pain, witnessed most powerfully at the cross of Jesus Christ. This pain grew out of God's deepest longing for justice and love. The Hawaiian word for such agony is eha eha, referring to the physical effort of hard breathing or panting. This is a heart-rending, lung-bursting experience of brokenness, like a woman's experience of childbirth. But out of it comes a divine cry for justice that refuses to be silenced. Rabbi Arthur Wasco tells a rabbinic story about the disclosure of God's name to Moses at the time of the Exodus. Remember, he's at the burning bush. He's been told to go back and free his people. He says, who should I say that is sending me? And God says, haye, asher, haye. In other words, I am that I am. I am who I am. I am because I am. It's all of those things at once. It's just a description of basic existence, self-existence. But then, In this story, as an afterthought, having revealed the holy name of Yahweh, God also gives Moses a nickname to use with those people who may not recognize Hebrew. What is the name of God that everyone will know? Yah. The sound of breathing, Moses is told. That is enough. That name will be spoken in the slave huts of Egypt and uttered in pain by the oppressed. To all that call God, To that call, God responds with hope and deliverance from bondage. And Yah was the earliest name of God in the Hebrew culture. Yah, the sound of breath. To cry out with that, that hard breath. How often have we done that to God when we had no words to express our pain and just this guttural cry comes out? Sound of breath, sound of breathing brings us into the next level of truth of life if we will let it. And so this fifth 
aspect, this brokenness, this awareness of the meaning of pain and suffering. As at James 1, 2-4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This pain is a part of life. And it works to complete us in love and justice. It creates the cry, the hard breathing that drives us to care for others, to champion others, to overcome the inertia that would keep us sedentary, complacent, and eventually to even lay down our lives for a friend and express that greatest love that Jesus talks about. These themes speak to Western theology with a deep prophetic simplicity. They invite us to the humble posture of the malahini, the Hawaiian word for beginner, who always perceives the truth as surprise. Do you love that? Malahini, always perceiving truth as surprise. Going out and seeing it for the first time, being willing to drop all pretense and expectation and see this truth for the surprise for the first time. Here it is that a haole like myself must always begin if he or she is to be surprised by grace. I'm told that the Maoris of the New Zealand sing a hymn known as Ha Ha as they invoke the divine breath or wind of those being initiated into their tribal mysteries. It is a holy laughter that falls like a spring breeze on people made newly open to the truth. Wouldn't it be great if we all just laughed at a baptism? Had this, this kind of, of, of holy laughter, this idea of we're all entering into this deep breath. Ah, given the enormous unpredictability of grace, it seems also to be a gift made available even to the Howleys. Reflecting on theology in a Pacific Asian context requires learning a new story, chanting to the universe, imitating the winds. It comes to us finally as a freeing movement of God's spirit across deep blue sea waters. Malahini, I love that. This is who we need to be. We need to put ourselves forever in the place of the beginner, always living life as a beginner, as someone who's willing to see something for the first time. Doesn't have to pretend that we know it all. Doesn't have to try to put those things. Just realize, yeah, I never thought of it that way before. I've never seen this before. Willing to learn, to be taught, to be surprised, willing to be blown about in unexpected ways, in a tiny canoe, on a deep blue sea. Can we do that? I pray, God, that we can. Let's pray. Father, you are the ocean. You are this deep blue sea that we sail upon. We can't see beneath the surface. We can't see so many things and it scares us. We can't see land on the horizon and it scares us. But help us to just set a course and go. Help us to learn to even relish the unknowing, the surprises that await, being blown off course, flat tires and rainstorms and whatever it takes to break through the expectations that we have so that we can see life as a beginner for the first time, so that we can be surprised by your grace constantly and consistently through our lives. Father, we're so grateful for everything that you've given us. Help us 
to consistently move in new ways, to banish the fear that we have, the sense of risk, and chart new courses and go with you as our breath, as our wind. Thank you for everything, Lord. We can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.